Well, kids, uh, have you ever heard the phrase that you have to see it to believe it? Anybody ever heard that phrase before? Who can tell me what that means? Yes, Jubilee. Yeah, it, like hearing about it isn't enough. You have to actually see it in order to. Okay, okay. So, thank you. So, does anybody have uh, an example? Like, has anybody ever experienced a you have to see it to believe it moment? Anybody got one of those, Keen? Oh, you would have never believed you were going to get to go to Disney World until you saw it actually happen. I like that. Yeah, Henry. I didn't catch all of that, but I bet it was fantastic. <laughs> well, I've got my own you have to see it to believe it story. Um, and it involves one of you. Okay? I don't know where the you is. I think I found him. About a year ago, Grady and I were playing baseball at Oakwood Park, which is right across the street from Jeffrey Kelly's house. And after we had been there a little while, Jeffrey found out that we were at the park, and so he came and he joined us. And And for a while, Jeffrey was catching fly balls that Grady was hitting. And after he had done that for a while, Jeffrey came in. It was his turn to hit. And on one of the pitches that I threw to Jeffrey that he hit, he literally knocked the cover off of the baseball. I would not have believed it if I didn't see it. But I did. And so I do. Second-year-old Jeffrey Kelly knocked the cover off of a baseball. Because sometimes we have to see things to believe them, or at least we think that we do. And that can be true even in our lives of faith. And that's kind of what we're talking about this morning in our sermon. Our desire to see in order to believe. And so kids, on your activity sheets, I've got some questions to help you follow along in the sermon. And um, after the service today, if you have a, you have to see it to believe it story, I would love for you to come up and share it with me. Church, have you ever wanted a sign from heaven? Have you ever thought, if I could just get a brief little glimpse, hear a tiny little voice, have some simple demonstration of God's power and presence in my life, then I'd really be able to believe. If I could just hear that still, small voice that Elijah heard on the mountainside. If I could just see a glimpse of the glory that Peter saw on top of the mountain, or that Paul saw in his vision of heaven, or or that John experienced in his revelation, if I could just see it, I'd really be able to believe it. Have you ever wanted a sign from heaven to strengthen you in your faith? This morning is the final Sunday in the season of Epiphany. Which is a season that's all about how God has manifested His glory and made Himself known to the world through His Son, Jesus. And just as we began this season of Epiphany, 
by considering a story where a sign and a voice were given from heaven to reveal the glory of Jesus at his baptism. So now we end the season of Epiphany by looking at a story where a sign and a voice from heaven were given to reveal the glory of Jesus, this time in his transfiguration. And in many ways, this sign of the transfiguration was the sign of all signs and the vision of all visions that accomplished everything that a sign and a vision are supposed to accomplish. It confirmed the faith of those who witnessed it. It strengthened them for the challenges that they were facing. It sustained them in their faith until the very end of their lives. It's everything we'd hope for when we desire a sign. So if you have a Bible with you, I want to invite you to open it with me to Mark chapter 9 and to 2 Peter chapter 1. As we consider together this great glimpse into the glory of God and why a similar experience is totally unnecessary for you. First, we're going to consider this great glimpse into God's great glory, looking at why it happened and what it meant and why it mattered. This event took place at a critical time in Jesus's life and in the ministry of his disciples. Up to this point in the story, things had been going mostly really well. Jesus had been preaching and healing and for the most part, enjoying incredible popularity among the vast crowds that were following him in order to sit under his teaching or be healed by his ministry. But as Jesus' popularity rose among the people of Israel, so too did the opposition against Jesus begin to surface among the religious rulers who were skeptical of Jesus' claims and jealous of his growing fame. And at this time, several significant events occurred which set the stage for this heavenly vision. The first of those is that Peter had just made his great confession, where for the first time Jesus was acknowledged by his disciples to be the Christ or the Messiah or their Savior. Up to that point, there had been a great deal of speculation as to who Jesus was. Everybody knew he was someone special because of the authority of his teaching and the miracles that he performed. But this was the first time that one of his disciples declared that Jesus really was who he said he was, the Son of the living God. And immediately after that great confession, the focus of Jesus' ministry changed. And for the first time, he began to tell his disciples about the suffering that laid before them. In chapter 8, verses 31 and following, Jesus began to teach them that he was going to suffer many things. And be rejected and killed before he would raise again on the third day. This obviously made no sense to the disciples. First, because if Jesus was their Savior, then how could he himself die? And second, because they had yet no working framework for the resurrection of a person coming back to life from the dead. In verse 34 and following, Jesus brought these warnings even closer to home when he told the disciples that if they wanted to follow him, that they too would have to take up their own crosses and lose their own lives in pursuit of him. 
The cost that lied ahead wasn't just for Jesus, but was for his disciples as well. And this really became the focus, the main focus in Jesus' teaching from this point forward. Over and over again, he was preparing them that he was going to die. And he was warning them that they were going to suffer before the glory that they awaited and hoped for would come. In Luke's version of the gospel, this is the point where we are told that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. All of his life from this point forward became about his journey to the cross and his impending suffering and death. And so you can see how this would have both confused the disciples and discouraged them. All they had known up to this point in their life with Jesus was miracles and ministry success. But now they were being faced with warnings of trials and suffering and death. You can understand why they may have needed the transfiguration experience to prepare them and to strengthen them for what lied ahead. In chapter 9, verse 1, Jesus alluded to that. When right after letting the disciples know how much it would cost them to follow him, he told the disciples that some of them were going to get a glimpse into the power of the kingdom of God, of which he had been teaching them about. And this is where our passage for today picks up. When six days later, we're told that Jesus took Peter and James and John and led them up to a high mountain where he was transfigured before them. Mark said that Jesus' clothes became an intensely radiant white. Luke said that the appearance of Jesus' face was altered. Matthew said that Jesus shone like the sun. In this moment, Jesus was completely transformed. Totally changed. Right before their eyes. His human body was glorified. His earthly form radically altered to reveal a divine, heavenly glory. No longer veiled in flesh. Jesus gave to his disciples a glimpse into the majesty and the beauty and the splendor and the wonder and the brilliance and the power of his heavenly reality. And all of a sudden, then with Jesus, Moses and Elijah appeared, the two great figures of the Old Testament who represented both the law and the prophets, God's ways and his promises. It was an affirmation that Jesus is the fulfillment of both. He is the fulfillment of God's law and the answer to our dilemma with the law. He was the hope of God's people. And the answer of every promise that God had ever made to them. Moses and Elijah's presence showed the disciples that Jesus was all was what all of the Old Testament was talking about and who all of God's people had been hoping for. And if all of that weren't enough, after the glorification and after the appearance of Moses and Elijah, then a cloud enveloped them and an audible voice spoke from the cloud and said of Jesus, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. It was the voice of God Almighty from heaven, affirming Jesus' identity and instructing the disciples to, to listen to him, to believe in him, to follow him. 
And then just as quickly as it all started, it was suddenly over. But not without first having its effect. This vision changed Peter and the other disciples. That is what a vision of the glory of God does to people. It changes them. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, the Apostle Paul said that when we behold the glory of the Lord, we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. That's what happens when we behold the glory of God in Christ. We are changed by it. We are changed by Him. And that's what happened to Peter and James and John, having witnessed Jesus' transfiguration. They went down from the mountain that day, different men, strengthened by all that they had to face, ready for any persecution that would come their way, prepared to endure to the end the suffering that Jesus had warned them was to come. The powers that opposed Jesus from that point forward were as nothing compared to the power that they had witnessed in the transfiguration. The threat of death in this world lost its sting in light of the glorious, heavenly, eternal life that they had seen and that they knew awaited them. The voices of opposition in this world became utterly insignificant in comparison to the voice of God Almighty that they had heard. This vision of Christ's glory changed them. And they carried that vision with them until their dying days. That's what we saw in our New Testament reading this morning from 2 Peter chapter 1. Turn there with me in your Bibles. Because this was written at the very end of Peter's life. As we see in in verse 14. And here at the end of his life, after all the persecution and suffering that Jesus and his disciples had endured, and facing his own impending death... As he was eventually martyred, it was this vision of the transfiguration that held Peter in his faith and that he wanted to share with others to encourage them in their faith. He said in verse 13, that as long as I am in this body, I want to stir you up by way of a reminder, verse 16, that we did not follow cleverly devised myths When we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. At the end of his life, after all that he had been through, and after everything else that he had seen, including the resurrection, including Jesus' ascension into heaven, it was this that Peter looked back upon in order to stay strong in his faith, in order to strengthen others in their faith. All of these years later, Peter is telling the church that we can be sure That our hope in the power of Christ and in the coming of Christ are true because he saw it with his own eyes. 
This is what a vision of the glory of God can do for you. It changes you. Strengthens you for your life. Sustains you throughout your trials. It carries you in faith until your dying days. And if the Lord ever gives you a sign or a vision or a a word from heaven to encourage you in your life and your faith in this way, then praise be to God. But the good news for us, church, is that we actually don't need this kind of mountaintop experience to have a vision of God's glory that will change us and that will strengthen us and that will sustain us in our lives of faith. We don't actually have to see it to believe it. That's what Peter says next. And this is the main point that I want you to hear and take away with you this morning. A mountaintop experience with God is great if He gives you one, but it is not necessary for your life of faith. You don't have to see it to believe it. Look with me at verses 19 and following to see why. After Peter recalls the transfiguration experience and how that was an event that assured him that his faith was not made up by man, but was in fact true, in verse 19, he then says, and we have something more sure, the prophetic word. Peter's saying that the vision was great. It was amazing. It changed me and sustained me in my life of faith. But we have something even more sure than the heavenly vision. We have the word of God. And then Peter exhorts us that we would do well to pay attention to it. And to put our focus on it. Because in the same way that a lamp lights up a dark room, the word of God will shine light into this dark world for us. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts. Until Christ returns, Peter is saying, we are to look to the Word of God to show us what we need to see. And then he goes on to explain why this is the case. Why the Word of God is so sure and certain. Making clear that the prophecy of Scripture never came from someone's interpretation. And it was never produced by the will of man. No one made this up, Peter is telling us. But this word came to us through men who were speaking from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It is God breathed. And so in a sense, he is saying, if you want to hear the voice of God... You can listen to it here in His Word. If you want to see a vision of the glory of God, you can witness it right here in the account of how He has been at work in the world. If you want a sign from heaven to encourage you and to strengthen you and to sustain you in your faith, they are all right here. Recorded for us by God of how He has revealed His glory in Christ for our salvation. 
This is the point of the scriptures. And the men who wrote it knew that. The Apostle John, who witnessed the transfiguration with Peter, writes in his first letter to the church, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 3, that that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you might have fellowship with us. He's saying that what he and the other apostles had experienced, they've written it down so that we might all share in the revelation of the glory of God together. Paul says something similar when he was speaking about the mystery of the gospel being revealed. In Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 3, he wrote that the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. And when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. He's saying, I was given a glimpse into the mystery in order that I could share that mystery of Christ with you so that you may know those mysteries also. This is the the point of the Scriptures. God has given them to us so that by reading them and hearing them, we may behold the glory of God revealed in Christ and may be changed by the vision of that. In the same way that the eyewitnesses were. In fact, Jesus told his disciples that we're more blessed than the eyewitnesses when we believe without having seen. Church, it's normal to want to see a sign from God. We'd all love to have the heavens open and to see the majesty of heaven and to hear the voice of God and to witness the power of the Almighty. We'd undoubtedly be strengthened in our faith by witnessing such event. But what Peter reminds us today is that we don't need to see it to believe it. We can read it to believe it. We don't need to audibly hear the voice of God because we can read His Word to us and hear Him speak by His Spirit. We don't need a demonstration of God's power because we have a book full of them. Stories that will strengthen us to the core of our inner being. We don't need to be an eyewitness to God's glory made known in Christ. Because we can read the accounts of those who were. And with them... We can behold the glory of the Lord and be transformed from one degree of glory to another. We don't have to see it to believe it. We can read it and believe it. May we do so for God's glory and for our good.